Ryan Smalls, an Aspen, Colorado native, had Olympic aspirations as a young man. He was skiing on the U.S. ski team in Europe when those dreams were shattered by injuries. After graduating from college at CU, he was back in the Aspen Valley, pursuing the passions of the mountain man he is. His father, Ray, had Ryan in the woods screaming at elk when he was just out of diapers. He fished the local rivers and chased elk in the fall. He eventually made his way to the Florida Keys, where dinosaurs reside. And over the years, he became world-class at catching large fish and harvesting piles of elk with his stick bow. On today's episode, we reminisce as brothers, two guys who continue to chase dreams, living life to our fullest. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties went to pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. (laughs) There's something fishy going on here. All right, uh, on today's podcast, I'd like to welcome Ryan Smalls from Aspen, a very good friend of ours. And, you know, for our audience, which has been, you know, kind of like in tune with the fishing world that we've been, you know, paying attention to and interviewing all these icons over the years, I'd just like to lead into to Ryan today in the fact that not only is he, you're a great friend, but you've got the trifecta going in the fact that you two grew up here in Aspen, you chased that Olympic dream. You are a big-time fisherman. You gravitated to the salt. You and your daughter, you brought her to the game at 11 years of age. She caught a 120-pound tarp, and we'd like to hear about that in a little bit. But two, a big passion of Nikki's and mine uh, are chasing big elk with bow and arrows. And in the Aspen Valley, you're probably the most prolific harvester of big animals, and especially with an asterisk being with a trad bow. So welcome to the podcast. Yeah, well, thanks, Andy, Nikki. We've been talking about doing this for a while, so uh, it's really an honor to uh, to be here with you boys. Well, it's great to have you. And again, for the, our audience out there, over the, this last year, we talked about chasing, you know, big game on light tackle. And and I th- I've always felt that we communicated, you know, with tarpon through feathers because you can make a fish bite your fly, you know, communicating, you know, through that hook and feather to that fish, but... I think the ultimate game is played when you speak to a 700-pound mammal with reeds and, and how you bugle and, and cow call. And that, to me, is what brings me to the table in this whole game. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You know, for me, I, I guess I look back to 
the first time I ever had the opportunity to uh, bugle elk with my dad. And it was before anybody ever thought of, of a diaphragm call. And my dad was a plumber for 35 years and had the old gas pipe that you, you know, if you, if you put it in a circle in just the right way and blew into it, it just made that fluty bugle tone. And, uh, and you couldn't get too creative with it, but I remember my dad told me a story. He was up on Bald Knob up in Hunter Creek Valley and he called in a bull with that thing that wouldn't go away and chased him up on top of a rock and was so, was so pissed off that he didn't know he had a handgun with him. He didn't know what he was going to do. And he ended up spending a couple of hours up there on that rock with this bull screaming at him. So I thought, yeah, you know, this could be, this could be, pre this could be pretty cool. So my dad, uh, my dad got me going, blowing, uh, blowing bugles and speaking to elk when I was a really little guy. And, and when did you start hunting elk around here? Well, um, you know, when I, when I started, you had to be 14 years old, but, uh, so you were waiting to your 14th birthday and then you were free going in the woods. Well, I, I don't know, at the risk of, uh, incriminating myself, uh, <laughs> my, uh, my dad jumped the gun a little bit. He couldn't wait for me to turn 14. So I shot my first deer when I was 11 and, uh, it was a, it was a heavy moment. I was, uh, you know, I wasn't sure. So you where, didn't, you where, didn't love it where, right away. You know, I, I'd gone hunting with my dad, but then when I actually, uh, pulled the trigger, it was, a. Uh, it was a, it was a really it was a really big moment but also in that moment i decided that yeah i was going to be a hunter so sure. what was the conversation that you had with yourself when you when you saw that animal tip over for the first time you know you're talking about a heavy yeah. moment what was that heaviness well yeah i th you know i think i was a pretty sensitive soul in terms of like seeing the road kill and like i really cared for these animals like there was a connection and a love that I had for him right from the beginning. So to be the one that, you know, was pulling the trigger and, and, and took, uh, took a deer's life. That was, uh, that was pretty huge, especially, you know, I was pretty young and, and, uh, I think in the initially, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a family situation where my grandfather was a hunter, my father was a hunter and for me uh yeah i was going to be a hunter but i wasn't so sure in the beginning because uh yeah so the way i got started well we all hear these stories whether and we always ask ourselves is that myth or legend or is this truth or or fiction you know and so i uh, speaking with your father yeah and he tells me you know that his dad was a hunter and i said well tell me the most fascinating story that you heard about your father which obviously your grandfather and your dad you know and he's a great storyteller a great jokester you know legendary skier you know here in aspen he said that his dad while sitting in a tree stand back east hunting fell out of a tree stand and during his fall shot an animal 
<laughs> yeah, so <laughs> really, if I fall off a tree, I'm 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 hanging onto my ass. I can't imagine actually shooting mid-flight before the big crash and actually hitting something. I don't know. The one thing you learn when you, know, you grow up in the smallest family is that uh, you're never supposed to let the truth get in the way of a good story. So that could. Uh, uh, I don't know how much truth there is to that, but the one thing I did know for sure about my grandfather uh was that he was an unbelievable shot with a rifle and uh i think that was kind of the best part for me yeah. you know my relationship with my grandfather was on his you know on our family farm in the catskills in upstate new york and you know cruising around on the tractor with him shooting shooting woodchucks off the stone wall and learning how to you know learning how to shoot a rifle and and uh those are some of the, the the best memories I have of my grandfather. You're right. The, the that hunting and fishing seed is planted at a very young age. Yeah. Like with you, Nick. Yeah. And the things we did at a very young age. For sure. Well, let's go yep. back to, you know, growing up in Aspen. What was it like for you to grow up in a little mountain town, ski town? You know, you're a mountain kid. Wow. What were those early years like for you, you know? skiing with your dad and and having these olympic dreams you know i i i think uh you know i rem remember in the beginning of uh passion for tarpon when you're talking about you know sitting in school you're supposed to be paying attention classes going on and you're sitting there writing you know drawing little slalom courses and downhill courses in your notebook looking outside just you know, just wanting to be in the mountains. And uh, that, I was the same kid. I mean, that was, that's all I, that's all I ever thought of. It's all I ever dreamt about. And, uh, yeah, and largely, again, since we started this with family, um, you know, my, my dad was at the heart of all that because I grew up in, in, in Aspen and, you know, all I ever heard was, do you know your dad's the best skier on the mountain? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I keep hearing that. It must be true. And and uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, for me now being, you know, on the, I'm, I'm on the other side of that um, with my own kids. I think uh, the greatest gift that you can get as a child or that you can give as a parent is to is to have your kids somehow be passionate about the same things that you are in. And uh, I was really lucky to have that in every way. And and uh, it's cool because that's so much of what you guys enjoy and it's a part of our friendship, so. For sure. And you weren't just a ski racer. You made the US ski team. You were on the ski team. Yeah, I was always kind of in the gray area. You know, I, 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 was, uh, I was fast, but not fast enough. Um, so I, I, I did a lot with the national team, but I was always kind of in the hinterland between being injured all the time and, uh, and not really knowing where, where I fit in, but, but definitely committed and with big plans and, and dreams. And, um, you know, I, I think if, I think if my body <laughs> could still do it, I'd still want to be doing it. Uh, but, uh. But yeah, my expiration date came pretty early. I was 
21 years old when I had to kind of oh, shift really? gears. Oh, really? That young? And, wow. Yeah. And, uh, but you skied in, in Europe with oh, the, yeah. under the umbrella of the U.S. ski team. You I skied did. in some big events. Yeah. So what injuries did you sustain? You're playing humble, the humble card here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, you know, I think, um, I, you know, it's funny because I look back and uh, and I had all, you know, I had all these plans. Uh, I convinced my parents to let me go to a ski academy when I was 14 years old because I knew that that was the path that I needed to be on to to, to get to where I wanted to be. And, and, uh, yeah, a couple of, you know, halfway through my first Vermont winter, I thought it was crazy, but I realized that Aspen was a pretty awesome place to, to grow up. But the, the, uh, the funny thing is, is my mom always was worried that I was just going to ski race and keep ski racing, but never really be good enough for, to call it a career. And that I uh, wasn't going to go to college. And and uh, I kept telling her, I'm like, no, mom, you don't, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. I, I think, you know, I think, I think you should be on board. And all she saw was the guys that I was racing with that, that were better. And they all proved to be, you know, World Cup racers and Olympians. And uh, so my mom came clean with me later on. She was just like, yeah, I. I didn't quite understand uh, what you were, you know, where where your level of commitment came from, and that you were actually pretty good at it. And so, what ended your career? So you asked me about my injuries. Uh, Nineteen years old, I snapped my patella tendon in my left knee. My whole quadricep rolled up my leg like a window shade. I had a downhill in Big Mountain, Montana, and uh, it was a really tough injury to come back from. Um, you know, I went to see Dr. Stedman over in Vail and he, uh, I'll never forget it. He came in the room and he, he goes, Ryan, you, you have a, you have a really bad knee injury. And he's, he said, it's not one that I see all the time. It's not one that I get to fix all the time, but this is what we're going to do. I'm going to do my best to fix it. And you're going to do your best to rehab it. And together we're going to, we're going to get great results. You know, it's really interesting. You mentioned Dr. Stedman. A lot of people in the world, especially in sports, know this this iconic uh, orthopedic surgeon from Vail. Yeah. And diverting from our, our, our story for a second, sure. when Phil Mayer shattered his ankle in the pre-Olympics in Lake Placid, during the press conference, um, they asked both Phil and Dr. Stedman the outcome of this injury. And Dr. Stedman said, I, I really don't know if he'll ever be able to ski at a world-class level again. And Phil looks at Dr. Stedman and he says, well, that's what, that, that's what he thinks. Yeah. The next year, so Dr. Stedman put like nine screws in his ankle and pinned it together. The next year, Phil wins a, a silver medal behind Stenmark in the, in the slalom in the Olympics. Wow. But that's what Stedman was really great at. I mean, a lot of, a lot of doctors could do the common things, the common operations, but Dr. Stedman treated the gray area the best yeah. in the world. And a lot of athletes from around the world came to see him, soccer, basketball, baseball, football, everybody came to see him and he fixed the world. Yeah. So kudos I, to Dr. Stedman. Yeah, definitely. He, uh, aside from just being a remarkable surgeon, you know, you have a young kid that all of his dreams somehow are potentially out the window 
And he had the wherewithal and the presence of mind to like just identify with me on that level. And from the moment that I met him, I was like, I I had no no choice but to believe that that uh, I was in the best hands possible and that it was going to work out. And that one worked out pretty well. I was able to come back and then um, fast forward a couple years, I ruptured three discs in my back skiing uh, at a camp in Hintertux, Austria, uh, early, you know, early season on the glacier. And uh, that one proved to be a lot harder. Um, never was quite the same once I started having back issues. Well, at least you can elk hunt. Well, yeah. <laughs> at least you can go chase animals. Yeah. Well, before we leave the, the world of skiing, um, avalanches have always been kind of like this this weird cloud around all skiers because skiing, you know, we all love to go into the backcountry, and the, uh, right around the corner, there was this big monster thing called an avalanche that was always kind of intriguing that whether or not you're ever going to get caught. And if you do, you could, whether or not you're going to survive or get nipped. And you took a big ride in Alaska. Tell, tell us about that one. Yeah, I did. I, I, uh, I guess the story kind of starts before I was in Alaska because uh, I uh, had a, a very close friend of mine and now legendary heli skiing guide, Greg Harms. Uh, we were skiing on Aspen Mountain and he said, you know, we were getting ready to do this trip to Alaska, the Tordrillo Mountains, the Tordrillo Mountain Lodge. And, and he said, you know, there's this really good avalanche airbag technology that's available in Europe. And it's really not popular yet, but you know it. Uh, you know, in it increases your chance of staying on top of the snow by upwards of ninety percent. And he didn't give me a choice as to whether or not I was gonna, you know, buy these airbags. He just said, "I ordered you some, and you can write me a check when you get to the lodge." <laughs> and I was like, "You're going to wear this." Thing. Yeah, I was like, "Okay, yeah." I guess so. You know, he's, this is my guy. He's my, <laughs> I'm in and got to the lodge and I got outfitted with these airbags and we skied for five days. I never even thought about it. Avalanche was, it's always in your mind. I think it's important that it's in your mind when you're skiing in a big mountain environment, you always need to be thinking about, um, the lines that you're skiing and you know, what's going to happen if something goes South on a run, but I wasn't, worried at all it was the fifth day first run of the day guy dropped in ski cut this line three of my buddies skied it and then i dropped in i made one turn and the whole thing ripped and a buddy uh who was on the top screamed avalanche which just kind of shook me and i looked to my right and all i could see was like the telltale giant slabs and broken refrigerator sized blocks of snow. And I thought, oh man, I got to get out of here. So I tried to ski out of it. But before I could go anywhere, I was on a giant plate of snow, like riding it like George Jetson. I had nowhere to go. I was already sizzling. And so <laughs> when I tried to ski out of it, I got knocked down. Then I stood back up and I was standing on the plate 
picking up speed, getting ready to take the take a big ride. And I was like, oh, I got the bags, man. I got I got a I got a plan B. <laughs> so I sat down, got ready, and this whole ba- this bowl kind of went down through a couloir, and all the snow was just getting ready to shoot through the coulee. And uh, I fired the bags and took the ride, and it was kind of some on top, some in the mix, some I don't even know what was so, going so, on. So when you say took the ride, you're flipping down with this avalanche, or you're yeah. on top of the snow cartwheeling well on, on top and then i could feel myself go under and then i even had the sensation of the bags pulling me back to the surface like wow. when they were you know yanking me back up to the top so the airbag is just deploying air like life preserver it's a life preserver pull, pulling you to the service yeah and some which really, they have in big surfing and too. some really unbelievable german engineers came up with this technology and the the bag that i had was german made um, there's a lot of them now. These guys were the first to the party with uh, with the airbags, ABS technology. And uh, so, yeah, thousand, thousand vertical feet later, I was sitting on top of the debris pile with my wings out like a cherry on a Sunday. And they are red, so you kind of <laughs> look like a cherry on a Sunday. And my bindings were on 18, so my skis never came off. No injuries. I was a little torqued up. I had a tear in my quadricep tendon and I hyperextended my elbow. Okay. But I was on top of the snow. Yeah. So it was all good. And I and, and it just skied over to my guide who was getting his transceiver out and was getting ready for his search. And here I came with my airbags out flopping across the debris pile. And it was the first run of the day. And I had a choice to make. Go back to the lodge and sit in the dark and freak out. Or get back in the helicopter and keep skiing. And we kept skiing. We did 14 more runs that day. And I'm glad that we did that because uh, I was able to frame that event where it belongs. Did life pass your eyes in any way at that point when you knew that you were in this big thing that could have killed you? No. You know, it's interesting. I was in a situation one time and I've been in car accidents where people have died. Yeah. I've hit bad things, skiing, broken my necks or a my neck, not necks, but my neck and my back and stuff. And I fell off this ravine one time in the Black Canyon of the Gunnison. And I had my girlfriend with me and her pack in my hand because she was getting tired. And my backpack hit the back wall and kicked me forward. And I went head first off this ravine. It was the only time in my life. I didn't think I knew I was going to die. And what went through my mind was, Really? This is the, how it goes. This is how I'm going to go. It, ends, it right was like here. humorous. It's like, are you yeah. kidding me? Because I, I knew I was going to go to the black. I knew it was over. I had a very different experience uh, and it, uh, that I wouldn't even qualify as a near-death experience. Or uh, I was sure I was going to be all right. And I don't know why. Right. I just was like, you know, this, I'm I was just like, right. I was just like, no, no, I'm going to be fine. And I had an action plan. I had to fire airbags. I had to be taking actions consistent with surviving. And uh, and it's interesting. I think I think about it like there was never a question. I was just like, you know, I got to. I got this. I, I got this. And I didn't have reason to believe that that was going to be the case but that's how it occurred for me in that moment interesting yeah. 
And then you moved on. You moved on from there to tarpon fishing. Well, shortly yeah, thereafter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, but, uh, but your life as a as a young man here in Aspen, it was all encompassing. You were trying to chase the Olympic dream. You were skiing backcountry stuff. You were skiing in Alaska. But in the summers, you had a relationship with the fish, right? I mean, oh, you yeah. started fishing at a very young age, and you were a fishing guide and a hunting guide at one point, right? I, I think it's important, like to, yeah. I mean, I I, uh, I I was a guide. I guided fishing. I guided elk hunts. I you know I did uh, I, I did that for sure. But I think the most important thing for me is is where I found fishing in my life when I really needed it the most and hunting that was true too. Like, uh, because I found myself in college in Boulder and I was supposed to be skiing on the ski team and my back was a mess and I was skiing in pain and it wasn't, I was not a happy, happy guy. And so I decided that I needed to table ski racing and kind of be done. And I had doctors telling me the same thing. Um, yeah, this guy, Dr. Peloza, who again was like the spine guy, uh, from Dallas at the time at Stedman. And he looked at my MRIs and he's just like, you know, you're not going to do well when you get older, if you stay the course. So just like that, I was done. Ski racing was over and I was in college and I was trying to find my way and figure out who I was and what I was up to. And and it was a struggle because I identified with myself as an athlete my whole life, and then that's gone. So I uh, took to the river, and I didn't ski for the better part of four years. I'd come back to Aspen from school in Boulder, and it'd be powder day, and I'd be on the river fishing. So fishing was my way out of a dark time, and uh, one that that uh where i was yeah for lack of a better term i was having an identity crisis and i found myself with fly fishing was there a light switch moment when all of a sudden you realized like i'm home i don't think there was the you know the light switch moment i think it took time mm -hmm. took took time but but the more that i that i kind of buried myself in fishing and my studies and found other things uh and yeah, I think some water needed to go under the bridge so that I wasn't thinking about ski racing anymore. But fly fishing was really special in that regard in that it was my it was my therapy and still is. And there was no, after your ski career was over, there was no game plan. It was just you gravitated towards the river. You loved it. You started doing it more and more. And then it was like, this is part of me. Yeah. There was no... I'm going to become a fishing guide right after skiing. There was no game plan. No, it was just, I wanted to fish all the time. And I had, you know, I, I think as is true with so many things, I had some guys that were really, really good at it to kind of, that got me going. And, and, uh, and I became obsessed with like catching big tailwater trout. That was my thing. <laughs> that was my, that was my game. I wanted to just, catch these huge trout and I couldn't get enough photos with them. So it's like my deal. I got all these, I got all these photo albums filled with great buddies, but mostly trout. Big rainbows <laughs> on the pan. Big old rainbows River. on the, on the pan and the tailor. And 
you know, every chance I got, that's where I wanted to be. I mean, I fished a tailor when it was 20 below zero and that I, I thought that was awesome. You know, the <laughs> only one out there. Yeah, right. It's crazy. But you know what's interesting when you when you talk about, you know, spending that much time on the water, and I've noticed in my life as well, a lot of my creativity comes from being alone. Fishing is is you do it alone. You might travel to the river with somebody, but you're alone. And I've noticed that throughout my life, big life-changing moments in creativity is done while I'm on the water. Sure, there are, there are times where you're really riveted on catching that one fish that you see or matching the entomology. But for the most part, it's great to be able to hear your own voice. And, and in life, we're always like chasing stuff, talking to people. You know, we're traveling, getting somewhere. You're, we're busy with work-related subjects. But when you're fishing, your, your mind has the ability to, to travel. And I think a lot has to be said for the beauty of fishing in that it could be a religious experience, it could be a personal experience, an emotional experience, and that's the beauty of fishing. It can take you to wherever your your body and your being needs to go at that time. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, to kind of dovetail that with, you know, moving forward and, and uh you know, deciding to, to start guiding and spend, you know, a lot of my time not by myself, which is, which was the, the part that was really special, but teaching it. And I loved teaching and I loved taking people out and then, you know, being able to create this incredible experience for, you know, for whoever I was guiding that day. But I gave something up with that too. And it caught up with me, you know, a decade's worth of guiding. And I realized that I'd taken this thing that was really near and dear to me and special and important for who I am and my well-being. And I kind of gave that up uh, in some regard by having it be my... my Commercial my, entity. Yeah, my, my vocation. So you lost the juice a little bit. A little bit for, tarp, for, for, for trout fishing. But then well, I, I know have, you want to talk about but then I we'll have, get into but that. But then I, you know, around that same time, you know, 1994 was the first time I went to the Keys uh, tarpon fishing with my dad. And uh, and was and, that with R.T. Trossett? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Talk about R.T. Trossett. So, look, I mean, I had I had no no clue what I was stepping into. We had this, we have an incredible family uh, of friends, um, the Spotswoods who live in the Keys and, and Jack Spotswood, uh, would come out here every year and hunt with my dad. And then I started getting in on that, uh, uh, years later, but it was really their friendship that created this opportunity where they would come out here and elk and deer hunt Jack would in the fall and we would head down to the Keys and Jack was really good friends with RT and, uh, so I, I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't know that, uh, you know, that I was heading out. The first day I'd ever spend in a skiff was with like the fishiest character I'd ever known in my life, and you know, a true, a true legend. Um, but we had, uh, we had unbelievable adventures in every way, and it wasn't always tarpon. <laughs> do you remember the first time or the first tarpon that ever bit your fly and and you know how 
shocking that might have been? Or yeah, what kind I of remember a- it. I remember it like you want to talk about a game changer. Uh, and it wasn't on the end of my line. I watched it happen. It was my dad. And uh, well, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll keep spots out of the conversation, you know, to protect uh, to protect these hallowed waters. But we were with RT out, you know, classic situation with the sun going down into the ocean and, you know, nice outgoing tide and you're in shark. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Of course you were. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. So, um, and I remember standing on, you know, standing on on the bow of RT's boat and looking across the channel. And here's my dad. You know, he's got his he flips this old like fly that Billy Pate tied himself this look like the entire chicken with these big whistler. This fly is like this long, right? Flips it out there, strips out a little bit of line and he goes to light a cigar. And he's just got the rod there and he's like, he's over there lighting his cigar and I'm watching him and I see this big tarpon come up out of the water, like right in between the boats. And I was just like, wow, I had no idea because he wasn't even fishing that just that whistler out there wagging its tail in the current. Enticed the bite. Enticed the bite. And he hooked up this big old girl and they took off after it. And and uh, my dad didn't know <laughs> he had never had a tarpon on. And he uh, did the classic uh, trout. He, he didn't even have a chance to trout strike the tarpon hooked itself but then as they were motoring off after it you could just hear the tarpon run and just hear the handle come around and just on my dad's knuckles (laughs) and rt was like hey got bloody knuckles in that boat over there (laughs) (laughs) so so that that uh that's the aha moment for me tarpon fishing and it wasn't it wasn't my it wasn't uh it wasn't the first time I hooked a fish. It was my dad. Interesting. And then you got your daughter in on it. Yeah. Well, that, uh, yeah, fast forward a lot of years. My dad, we, we, you know, we've made that trip down there uh, together every year since 1994. And, uh, and so, yeah, to be able to bring uh three you know go three three generations generations deep as a was a really big deal and unfortunately with covid this year was the first year that uh, my dad didn't 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 go to the keys but we're gonna we're gonna get back on it when this thing blows over but you know what's interesting you know i've seen people over the years that that do things and they really enjoy things but they never pursue them and dedicate their lives to do something as well as you have with skiing, with tarpon fishing, with bow hunting, you know? So, and then you got, you know, with Diego Rullier, you started fishing with him, which is the the cutting edge of, of all guides in the lower keys uh, that pushes a skiff right now. I've seen, you know, your pursuit of perfection with tarpon and you've gotten really, really good over these years. Tell me about your passion and about the pursuit of doing well with these game fish. Well, it's interesting because, you know, 
I get about five days, maybe a week a year to do it if I'm, you know, if everything lines up and with, you know, you've, you, you take those numbers down for the years you go and the weather doesn't, you know, you, you, the glimpses are kind of few, can be few and far between. But for me, starting with RT and certainly now with Diego, um, I get, I might only get those five days, but I stand on the shoulders of giants every time I go. And I know that I got a, I got a better chance of, of making the most of the, of the, of the time that I have and the quality of the experiences that, that we've had there over the years. Cause, cause, uh, the incredible people that I've had a chance to fish with, um, it's incredible as far as like how good uh, look, I, I think I just get back to being as good as I was when I wrapped up the year before and it takes me five days to get there. And then I kind of hit the reset button, but I, um, yeah, I mean, I put, put the practice into for, you know, in the park doing what I can to uh, at least, uh, do my part, you know, the guides work so hard. Mm -hmm. The last thing you want is to is to squander those hard earned opportunities because you the lack didn't, of practice because you didn't because you didn't you didn't commit yourself to preparing to master the the moment right and kind of across ski racing elk hunting tarpon fishing you're a perfectionist I mean I think I'm the what that what all of these things have in common for me is that is is the pursuit of mastering being the successful when everything's on the line that's that's what they all have in common i mean you will you will text me when it's snowing in december in aspen talking about i think i think this pink this pink leather is is a good leather <laughs> i mean most people you're are tired. taking laps on ajax and you're thinking about polo worm leather <laughs> and you have 5 days in may yeah you're obsessed yeah no i'm i'm obsessed for sure um, but, uh, there's a lot more that goes into that obsession than just the fish. And I spoke about it. It's this friendship that I have with the Spotswoods and the Keys. It's the family trip that I do every year with my dad. It's being in the presence of greatness with people that have dedicated themselves to being the very best at their craft, you know, in RT and, and, and Diego and, um, Having the opportunity to be a part of that, even if it's a short period of time, is uh, is pure, you know, pure gold for me. It's uh, it's something that I value um, probably as much as any endeavor. Um, but I don't know. One of these days, I always used to. I always used to say that you know, in my next life, I was going to come back as Andy Mill. <laughs> you know. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of pain than this. He did it. He did it. Surface. Yeah, but you know, okay. So the ski racing, sure, he, he was made it made it further along than I did, and legendary legendary tarpon angler, and mm. he's gonna try to convince us that he doesn't know anything about elk hunting and he's full <laughs> of shit. But uh, yeah, so I you know I thought it'd be pretty cool to come back in my next life as Andy Mill until I saw him chase that chicken <laughs> and. Uh, and, 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 and between, he's not so smart. And, and between between blowing his hamstring out chasing that chicken and the 
I mean, the god awful performance picking up sheds when we went shedding in <laughs> the spring. I uh, I don't know. Oh I don't know god. if I'm coming back as Andy <laughs> Miller anymore. I, I, I think shed hunting and looking for lost golf balls fall right parallel to each other. Yeah. Anyway, tell us the uh, the story briefly before we get into you know the elk hunting adventures. Yeah. about about your relationship with Zala and yeah. and her encounter with that big fish she caught. Yeah, well, and having your I, dad I, on the boat in the yeah, three generations. I, I think it's I think it's important to say that um, I'm a I'm an under the radar guy. You know, I I I don't I don't listen to many podcasts, let alone you know want to take part in one. But uh, a big part of my being here today is is Zala because she loves you guys and. She watches all the podcasts. So if I miss the opportunity to be on the podcast, that wouldn't work out so well. <laughs> um, but yeah, Zala, uh, you know, she, she, she's, a, she's a special soul for sure. Um, and she loves... You know, kind of back to this idea that if you can give your passions to your kids, that's a pretty beautiful thing. Well, so far so good with Zala. She's uh, she's really into the things that uh, that I like to do, and and uh, you know where we lived, we had a trout pond in the backyard, so we we she was out there fishing from the moment that she could hold a rod, and and uh, and the 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 cool thing was. I didn't have plans to bring her to the Keys before she could really appreciate what it was and even do it, but it just worked out. It was like, Zala, you want to go to the Keys? And she was just flipped out. So we, we, we practiced in the park, you know, we, we got things going, got a little double haul in the works. And the whole time I'm thinking like, this is all neat, but she's not going to fish. Like, this isn't happening. It's not... Uh, and uh, and I prepped her for that. I was like, Z, you know, we're going, but I'm going to be doing most of the fishing. Like, I don't know that you're going to really get to fish that much. It's pretty hard. She's like, okay, well, that's fine. Ati, that's who I am. I'm Ati because that's dad and Slovenian and everything in my world is Slovenian. I'm the only one that doesn't have a Slovenian name. Even the dog has a Slovenian name. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we were down there and we'd been fishing for for four days i think three days and uh it was blowing 20 and diego all of a sudden is just like hey zala i got a spot where we gotta go get ready you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna fish and i was like all right so we ran and zala got up there and channel <laughs> 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 I'm editing this out. Yeah, 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 edit that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they come right to the boat. <laughs> yeah, so it was the spot where they come to the boat. And uh and and Diego had it wired and got we got Zala up there and and uh he just got her going where she was cast into a spot. Right. Knowing that the fish would come by that spot. And uh but she's got some charm too. She it was not a good day to be fishing, and she was up there for about five minutes before the fish started coming. And and uh, first single came by, and she was behind it. She didn't get it out there. And then 
we looked down the flat and it was like, okay, here comes a nice little pack. And Diego was just like, okay, Zala, you just start casting to your spot. Just, yep, just, you know, and she's working it out there. A little water haul, you know, is blowing. So she gets it out there right on time. Diego goes, just give it a bump. She bumps it. Big old black and purple toad. And she's like, one more time. Boom, bumps it. And the biggest fish in the bunch just stuck her head out of the water 30 feet from the boat and just put on an unbelievable, like the bite that you dream of. But I had an 11 year old girl attached to the other end. <laughs> like, and it did, I was, we were just like, we didn't even know how to make sense of what had happened. We were just freaking out. We were screaming. And she was just like, boom, hooked it up. Fish never jumped. And just took off. And uh, yeah, we we fought the fish and we, you know, got the leader and the whole deal. And man, I, I just thought if I could ever find a way to get a photo, that photo, that would be, that would be incredible. But she was fishing with the nine weight. It wasn't in the guards. So we fought it as long as it was responsible. And right. then, yeah, and then she chewed through. So it was good, oh, good that it kind of ended that way. But uh, then we went and had dinner that night with you guys. Which was uh, which was the icing on the cake so for fun. for a, a moment that it's kind of fun to try to put words to, right. but there's no way to do that. It's like this incredible experience uh, that, yeah, if it's the pinnacle of my angling life, and I think it will be, it's where it belongs. Wow, that's special. Now you got a now you got a pal to to fish with now. You know, like, oh, yeah. like your father had you, now you have Zala, you yeah. know? Yeah. You got some tough wow. kids. Yeah, no, they're, they are. They're they're hardy kids. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's cool. It's pretty fun. Yeah, pretty they're fun. awesome kids. They're good they're kids. Good for you. Yeah. Um, let's, let's go into the, the whole bow hunting rifle thing and, you know. Yeah. Um, cause that's been a huge part of your life and you've been a big inspiration to a lot of other kids around this Valley, you know, kids, I call them kids, but kids. they're y- young, young men like, like Will, yeah. you know, uh, Cardamon. Well, he's not only a bow hunter, you're a traditional archery hunter. Yeah. And for the listeners, you know, they might not understand what a traditional bow looks like. I mean, that's like. Right. Show us, show us your show bow us your here. Bow. You've got it here and your arrows and that's all right. Sorry. I mean, this doesn't yeah, this have is, cams or wheels or no metal but, bolts or no. It's a it's a stick and a string and and uh, there's but there's some technology involved here for sure. I mean, this is my go-to hunting bow. It's built by a guy uh, named Jim Neves, Centaur Archery in Montana, uh, and it's a uh, it's an amazing amazing weapon. Uh, and I've made my own bows, but nothing that uh, that I felt like I should get out there and hunt with. Uh, and then, um, you know, you can see that these low diameter carbons are not that much different than what you see on your compound setups. The biggest thing is that they're they're heavier and 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 have a you know more specifically, they're really high percentage FOC. So, so, so they're heavier because the velocity, of yeah. the, the speed's not as quick. Yeah, as you a, give up the speed side of the equation for a harder. You gotta hitting. make you gotta make up you gotta make up for it with mass weight for uh, you know momentum and penetration. So, 
but as I've learned, as I've because I'm a tinkerer and I'm always trying to make stuff better, I've learned that uh, yeah, these high FOC setups are really, really effective, not just for for flight characteristics and accuracy, but also the penetration potential and lethality of the arrow goes way up when you when you pay attention to some key components to the arrow design. The micro diameter shafting is one. And uh, you know, having that weight as far as far forward of center as you you, you can really adds a great deal of uh, a, a great deal of um, of lethality uh, to a traditional archery setup. The kinetic energy. Yeah, I mean, so it's not so the... much. I don't think so much in terms of kinetic. Um, what's more important for for me uh, is momentum. Right. Because momentum is what equals penetration, and and you get or you've gotten full pass throughs yeah. with your arrow using a traditional bow, yeah, at fifty pounds, fifty five pounds, twenty eight inches. I got a full pass through on a on a on a moose, unbelievable. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's uh, it was it's a progression for sure. How did you get into the trad bow? So. Because uh, you went obviously from the rifle to, to most likely a compound. Yeah. So why did you make this this switch? Was it too easy? No, no, it's uh, not at all. <laughs> you just wanted harder. <laughs> no, it's. Uh, I had a great friend that that uh, that shot a longbow. We were in the woods together, and and. Uh, and he's still one of my closest friends and hunting buddies. And it was a season out shooting, you know, carrying. I was lugging that compound bow around. And he had this nimble little longbow that he was shooting all the time and having fun stump shooting with. And I was just like, man, that's that's cool. Let me shoot that was thing. Was he effective? Was he killing stuff at the time? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and so, yeah, his he – I just started – shooting his bow a little bit and i was really taken by it not just the hunting aspect but the archery itself mm -hmm. shooting one of these bows is i mean i'm trying to i'm trying to woo you guys over to the trad well, side of the equation so know, we, I, I, we're going to keep shooting them but but just shooting them adds a component to archery that's really compelling I would think it's almost a relationship, the difference between throwing a spinning rod and seeing the arc of a fly line. The artistry, possibly, yeah. to this game, which fly fishing is to fishing. Yeah, I think, an art form. I think that's I yeah, think comparable. I think for me that's a pretty that's a pretty good image. It's because good Flip Pallet Yeah, Flip Pallet said we were speaking about, you know, compounds and, and stick bows, and he was saying at some point I'm going to make you an archer. Yeah. And we were always killing stuff with a compound bow. He said, this is the fly fishing of archery. And you told me that. And I think I already loved Flip Pallet. Now I'm, <laughs> now, you're, now I'm really <laughs> sold on that guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the correlation that, that is kind of woven in my mind, you know, with what you're doing with the trad bow. Yeah. I, I think, uh, so I, you know, it's cool when you when you have, you know, a good friend or whatever kind of turns you on to something. But then, when it becomes 
totally consuming. Uh, and you really want to pour yourself into that. And that's how it was for me. Like when I made the switch to shooting, uh, first for my first bow was a recurve it was made by a really amazing bowyer out of Oregon, this guy named Wes Wallace. And, uh, and when I started, started shooting that bow, I was just like, there was never, there was never any looking back or picking up a compound bow or. It was like, nah, this this whole gig really spoke to me and I wanted to get good at it. Let's go back to when you first started bow hunting in the Aspen Valley. Yeah. This was, what, 17, 18 years old? When did you get into bow hunting? No, I was a little older. Um, it was, uh, I was 22. Okay. And, it, and, and as it turns out, and I've always kind of liked it, uh, that there's a correlation uh, the first year that I that I ever bow hunted was also the first year that I ever went tarpon fishing. So same amount of time. Hmm. And what was it like hunting around here in this valley back then? You don't want to hear these stories, Nikki. <laughs> you really don't because it's just gonna no. Make, I do. It's just it's too just, good. It's just to gonna be make, true. It's just gonna make you sad. No. It, I mean, how many it, opportunities it, in a in a day hunt would you have? So first and foremost, it was there was nobody out there. You know, I, it was the last thing I had to think about. Like I, if I was going to hunt somewhere, you just go, I didn't think like, Oh man, there might be, there might be somebody there at that spot. Or, you know, I wonder if there's been somebody there, you know, there was, there were so few people out there doing it. Uh, and, uh, and at the time I even felt like I was kind of late to the game. I knew a handful of bow hunters, uh, locally, my one guy who really helped me out early on was my was one of my dad's neighbors. This guy Stan Lariski, who was just a diehard bow hunter, and he built his own broadheads, which in became a really good broadhead that Muzzy bought. It's the Muddy, Muzzy Phantom that was okay wow. made in a guy's garage right here in Aspen, mm. and and so uh, there was a small community of bow hunters and some really some really cool people that were out there doing it, but you really felt like you had the mountains to yourself compared to where we are now. Uh, and, uh, it didn't happen overnight. You know I mean? It evolved over, over time in terms of, um, how the, how, how bow hunting really took off and how, how it's changed the game and what it means now to hunt on public land versus the opportunity that was there when, when I started out. And not only was there a lack of pressure, but the, there were so many more animals correct that's because yeah i mean i really feel like i lucked out the time that i started bow hunting and looking at the population studies and knowing like i i i got to hunt right through the heart of the golden age of of bow hunting for elk uh on public land in colorado no doubt about it i got the very very best of it in my mind now, if you rolled back the clock further, you know, maybe somebody else would feel the same way. But I, I feel like I, I saw the best of it. But what, what is that great day? Like, what? Because I, I know nothing about that. Because I'm, the, it's so hard nowadays. Like, how do I tell me a little bit about like a great day in the woods back then? So the bugles or what's going on? Yeah. Well, there was a, there was the 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 biggest thing that I missed is that there was a rhythm to everything. 
there was a progression to the rut so that when you when you were out and when you were out in the mountains every day you could you could just drop into this to this rhythm and live with the elk and you knew how the rut was progressing you knew what was going on from one day to the next because unless you blew them out or something happened you know they they weren't they weren't bothered and they weren't being called to and they weren't you know uh and when you ha for me i had a whole valley of places that i knew to go learning growing up where to go hunt and and i they were just happy elk they're they were always happy it's like happy and if fish you them, just yeah. like happy fish you know like home assassin they, they were just the like the you know you get those those big old brown back wobblers that are swimming right under the surface you're like oh if i do my part that fish is gonna eat well it was kind of like <laughs> it was kind of like elk hunting then too it was like all right if i don't get winded and i do my part you're gonna i'm gonna it. have an elk i'm gonna be able i'm gonna have an elk in uh close quarters and uh and that was the other real intrigue with the traditional archery is that in the beginning, I was really good at getting close to them and not that good at, at uh, necessarily killing them. But, uh, but I realized pretty early on that getting close was not a problem. Um, so that, you know, having a traditional bow in hand wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't uh, a disadvantage in my mind Because at you're all. shooting 25 yards and in. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so... I mean, I would keep track of how many bulls I'd call in in a season, and I was running, you know, running around back and forth from college at that time. And how many bulls? Yeah, thirty in a in a in called in inside right. of in bow range, close quarters. I didn't uh, see thirty elk last year alone. I yeah, for twenty five days. Yeah, yeah. Well, neither did I. <laughs> 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 Neither did I. Hey, let's get into the uh, your reads and your calling, if you yeah. don't mind. Uh, is it true that you... It's going to be a lost art, boys. <laughs> <laughs> is, is it true that you learned a lot about your calling over a telephone conversation oh. with your mentor? Oh, my God. This is, is this hilarious. true? Yeah, this is classic. <laughs> yes, it's true. I befriended over the phone this amazing guy named Ralph Moline, who was the owner and creator of Aben Sons Elk Calls. And I would call this guy and get him on the phone and I could get him going and he'd never stop talking. And we'd just talk about all these different scenarios and this guy was a riot. And so, uh, yeah, I'd get, him, I'd get him on the phone and he'd just be like, oh yeah, and then, you got to try the friendship bugle. And I was like, really, Ralph? What's a friendship bugle? He was like, oh, yeah, you, you just want to be nice to him and let him know I'm your buddy. I'm over here. I'm not a big threat, but you might want to come check me out. <laughs> so this is a bugle. You do do friendship bugle early in the season when they're, when, they're, when they're not angry yet. And just put that friendship bugle out there. And usually if you do it right, they'll come in head down licking their lips. <laughs> really? <laughs> Like, no way. Could you give and us I the friendship bugle? Like, Can you give us the friendship <laughs> us bugle? The, the friendship one. bugle. I want to hear the friendship bugle. Oh, God. All right. <laughs> hey, 
And the question remains, do you still use the friendship bugle? I don't know. I, you know, I, I still love, I still love talking to elk. I still, you know, think that I should be able to call in every elk that I talk to. And I'm obviously wrong about that, but the game has changed so much that to be effective and to, you know, to be a, to be a good elk hunter often, uh, especially on, on public land and hunting elk that are pressured, uh, you know, you, it's a lot of times it's better to get the wind in your face and check the calls at the door because because uh, it, it's not it's definitely not as effective as it used to be okay. in my experience right Let's but that it. doesn't mean I won't you know I, I you know it's funny I, that you bring up bring him up because yeah <laughs> yeah he was a cool guy and I I I don't know that he's still alive but uh, but he lived in Coos Bay Oregon. And he would send me all kinds of prototypes of calls that he was making, and I'd talk to him for hours at a time. And, and you would call in the phone, and oh, he'd yeah, say, and we, "Oh, and, you got to get a little okay, higher so pitch." Okay, come on, give and us we, a little example we, of the friendship. And we, and we would bro, blow bugles to each other over the telephone <laughs> for hours on end. Your wife probably thought that was a little questionable. <sighs> I actually think that my uh, my friendship with Ralph Moline predated my wife. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, okay so the whole idea with a friendship bugle is that you know there's l very low intensity not a lot of urgency but it's one of those bugles like i'm over here and it's good like for that pre you know kind of pre-rut when the bulls are just kind of coming out of their bachelor groups and they're trying to size up the competition and they want to know who's around so so give it to us okay that's it not a lot of anger not a lot of anything and he was always like big into like you know all these like nice Fluttering nice things. nice little friendly chuckles on the backside i like that yeah. <laughs> i'm all chummed up i don't want to hear my dad try that but. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, there's. Go ahead. How about a cow call? Okay. What's your favorite cow call? My favorite cow call is the Steve Chapel signature series from Rocky Mountain Game Calls. This guy right here. And uh, I don't know who I, I don't know Steve Chapel. I've never gotten on the phone with him, but he knows a thing or two about calling elk for sure. And the calls that the that his signature series is a really good call. So, that's kind of estrusy, whiny stuff. But what about your impressive. weasel call? <laughs> My weasel call. <laughs> yeah, you really dug up some good stories on me, didn't you? Tell us that story. You want to hear the weasel story. Oh, you want to hear the weasel story. And how you got your name. Oh, my laughing weasel. Your laughing weasel the laughing name. weasel. All your buddies call you. Yeah. We want to hear the story. So uh, I was hunting, uh, and you, you talked about Will. Um, I think it's important that I just kind of speak to that a little bit. Um, 
because uh, it's really been an amazing journey for me to uh, to have hunted a lot with somebody who's you know more than more than ten years my junior. Um, that really he sought me out because he knew that I he wanted to learn how to hunt with a trad bow. And uh, so I think uh, he was in his teens when we first started hunting together and to have an opportunity to, you know, to have a to have a hunting buddy like that, but also someone that you get a chance to mentor and teach him uh, teach him the ropes and then to watch that evolve into where the mentee kind of gets to blow the mentor away. And that's, you know, that's kind of what's happened uh, with Will and his progression as a, as a hunter. And I, I kind of more like a full, full-time mountain man. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, he's more than a hunter, but uh, we were, uh, we were, we were out just hanging out in this Aspen bench and uh we got there you know we got there a little early needed to wait for the thermals to kind of die down and get you know get so that the air would start to drain so that we have some consistent breeze to be able to move in on this group of elk and uh we're hanging out and i think i was you know eating a bar drinking some water and we were in just leaning against, just sitting down, leaning against trees in the grass and this beautiful, like, you know, little Aspen, little Aspen sanctuary. And uh, Will all of a sudden got really excited. And I was like, oh, they're elk. I was like, we don't have to wait. They're here. All right. And he's like, he's just like giving me signals. He's like, no, no. over there. And I'm looking, I'm looking for an elk. I'm like, I don't see anything. He's like, no, no. I look over there and I look and there's, here's this, this little, this little weasel working his way, kind of coming along through the grass and he'd cruise along and then he'd just pop up on his back legs and look around. So I was like, oh, wow, this guy's cool. <laughs> I'm going to mess with him a little bit. So I'm there just like, you know, watching the weasel and then I go, start making these little mousy kind of sounds and this weasel went from like sunday stroll to full-on predator mode like he heard that and he was like on the hunt and so he would cruise through the grass a little bit and then pop up look around and i would and then he'd go back down in the grass and I was like, oh man, this is funny. And like Will and I are looking at each other like, check this out. This is crazy. How great is this? And then he he get start getting, he's close, right? So I'm like, all right, here he comes. Like, I wonder how this is going to go. And he pops up on this downed Aspen log, this dead Aspen log. And he kind of gets up so he can look around and he's looking around. And I gave one too many and that thing just locked on me. <laughs> and he's on, and I'm just like, oh no, oh shit, like this thing is coming. And he just aired out straight at my face, just launched. 
And I jump up out of the way. He lands on my shoulder and I'm rolling around on the ground and I'm trying to get rid of this weasel who's trying to eat my face. <laughs> and uh, finally the weasel takes off and uh, I look over at Will and we just like, like what, what just happened? <laughs> And then, yeah, well, I mean, we completely lost it and just, you know, rolled around laughing, tears streaming out of our eyes. And so, yeah, that's how I got the nickname Laughing that's Weasel. weasel. <laughs> There's another story from your friend Benji. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, by the way, um, and I should have said this before, Benji is my friend uh, and, and the guy that, like, really took me down this traditional, traditional archery path. And he's... Uh, he has continued to like take it to the inter inner sanctum of primal living and survival. And he makes, you know, the bows that he hunts with, he flint naps the, you know, stone points, like he does it all. So Benji's the real deal. So tell us about your pack goat story with, or Benji's pack goat story. Well, <laughs> So, uh, I don't know, where do we start with the pack goats? Um, I got interested in pack goats, kind of, it's kind of a cool, you know, kind of coming full circle with the whole ski racing world. And there are a lot of ski racers that are, that are serious and really amazing bow hunters, starting with Lonnie Venata. Um, and one, and my friend Cedar Beauregard, who I, who I, uh, ski raced with was coached by Lonnie and Lonnie had a hand in turning Cedar into a bow hunter and uh Cedar and I lost touch for I don't know we didn't see each other didn't talk for like 15 years and then he developed this really cool technology where he was shooting properties with a remote control helicopter long before drones and all that now he built his own helicopter and he called me because he knew that I was uh a real estate broker. And he's like, yeah, you know, if you ever need me to shoot property, I'll come to Aspen, shoot it for you with my helicopter. I was like, man, that's cool. So I had Cedar come over here and I didn't even know that he was big time bow hunter at that time. And he spent the night with me and we shot this property and he was like, you have back goats? And I was like, do I have what? Back goats? I was like, no. He's like, you need back goats. He's like, I got back goats. <laughs> He's like, you got to have them. And I was like, really? So he told me all about pack goats, got me all fired up. Go further than anybody can go. Still get an elk out of the woods. Like I was all about it. So I went headlong into the pack goat program. I ordered up five goats from this dude in Nebraska. <laughs> and we got the goats. And uh, my buddy, uh, Andrew Meeker, who was also one of my closest hunting buddies, uh, he had a little ranch up past the monastery in Capitol Creek. And, and, uh, I was like, Meeks, I'll get the goats. I'll pay for everything. And they're, they're going to live with you. He was like, okay, Smallsy, you know, bring on the goats. So we got the goats. It was the first year we had the goats and, uh, Benji came down from Idaho. He lives in, uh, in Bellevue, Idaho now, just outside of Sun Valley. And, uh, we, we, we cooked up this whole super deep pack goat adventure. And uh, we got the goats going. We got it. We got all the way multi days out into the wilderness. And uh, I was like, man, I got, 
I got to go back to town. I got to go back to work. So you guys just stay out here and I'll pick you up at the trailhead. And at this time, like I'd got them all lined out on the goats. Everything was going well. They're dialed. Not that much to know. You got it. I hiked out. Went to go meet him at the trailhead a couple days later. Nobody's there. And then I just see he and his girlfriend at the time there. They're uh, they're married now and have a beautiful little girl Zoe, uh, and uh, and but they were still pretty new, fresh in their relationship. And Benji thought it'd be a good idea to bring his girlfriend on an elk hunt in Colorado, and she was up for it. It was awesome, but they just looked whipped, and there were no goats anywhere to be found, and. Uh, they made a mistake. They, the goats kind of got in a routine where they hang out with you. They want to be with you, but um, they didn't put them on a line and, and they crawled in the tent. They said they were taking a nap. I don't know. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't really know what version of the story you want to run with, but they were in the teepee. You know, once I got these goats, I got the 12 man Kafaro teepee with the biggest stove and had all the cool gear and they got in the teepee and the goats split. They lost your guns. Gone. Gone. And uh, we went We went back in. We hiked and hiked and hiked and hiked and glassed and glassed and never could find even a track. They're gone. And at this point, the goats, like my kids, they're really young and they're all about the goats and they're already part of the family. And now all at once, all five of them are gone. And uh, so we got this idea. We got uh, a pilot to take us up and fly us around. We're going to find the goats that way. Couldn't find the goats. Found out Benji can't fly in small aircraft, though. He's like the biggest, strongest, like, <laughs> Viking-looking dude you ever come across. And he was reduced to a puddle on the tarmac when we got out of that airplane. And he was green, and he'd been throwing up. <laughs> And he got in the car that day and had to drive back to Idaho. And it was just all tears. And it was, it was so tough that we lost these guys because they're cool. Right. We have never done the pack goat thing together, but we're going to. And uh, eight days later, I was, there's this uh, policeman in town who's, who's a bow hunter and a very good one, uh, Forrest Barnett. And... Uh, I was just passing forest on the street and I was like, Hey man, I know you're out there hunting. If you see my pack goats, let me know. And he was like, pack goats. And he started to say, well, what's a pack goat? And he said, do they have dog collars on? And I was like, yeah, they're wearing dog collars. He goes, I saw them. I'm like, you're kidding me. And, uh, they had been making their way back to the trailhead. Those goats knew where they were the whole time. And they got in these cliffs where nobody could eat them. And they were hanging out in these cliffs. And that's where Forrest spotted them. I was two days behind them. And I went up there with, with Meeks and we glassed them up like last little bit of light. And uh, it took me, I don't know, about an hour and a half to hike to them. And they wouldn't come down out of the rocks. But when we're on the trail, I, I feed them a honey nut uh, Quaker granola bars. And so when they hear the rappers, they know they're going to get a treat. So I just 
crinkled the wrapper and they came boom 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 down through the cliff and they were like hey what's up we've been out touring in the wilderness sick like take us back to the take us back to the ranch now but give us the granola bar first so I gave them the granola bar and they followed me out of there and we took them home so you fast forward that story now benji i think has 11 goats or something he's a big pack goat guy uh and uh and so um as a wedding gift. And I had the distinct privilege and the honor to, to marry Benji and his wife, Aaron, years, um, years after we lost the goats. You know, credit to you, Benji told me, he said, never once did you complain or be upset. You just said, let's go find him. We got to go find him. And he was. I'm glad he, he remembers it that way because I was pretty messed <laughs> up. And I remember us like in the, in the teepee, like, crying and just it was tough yeah it was easy sure. but uh but um but you're a good guy yeah you are a good man you know you're so heartfelt and you have so many great friends tell me the last story that you have about your mom and this new bow you're gonna have built and you have a big hunt upcoming yeah you know unit 10 i knew you were gonna make me cry <laughs> But that's okay. I'm a crier. I own that too, for sure. Um, so I'll let I'll, I'll let the faucets turn on here. But uh, yeah, lost my uh, my mom <clears throat> to cancer this winter. She was she she was the most graceful warrior through all of it. Five years she lived with terminal cancer, and uh, and I do. I have a big hunt coming up. I decided that uh, it was time to stop accumulating points and to use some of these points to go and you know have a special hunt. And the fact that it's this year means a lot to me, and I'm definitely taking my mom with me uh, symbolically. Uh, there, you know, Jim Neves, who makes these incredible bows, I've been on his wait list for a while, and it just turned turned out that it was time to get a new bow. And he he's designed a new recurve that that is uh, I'm really excited to play with and shoot. Um, but uh, I don't know; it should be happening here pretty soon. Tell me about the bow briefly before we. Uh, yeah, it's called it. It's called a super curve. It's a really radically curved recurve limb. Um, and part of what Jim has fingered, fi figured out with the design, uh, as other bowyers who have developed these super curve designs, is that um, the draw curve is very different in that it front loads. It's pretty heavy to draw in the beginning. But then the further you draw the bow, it gains less poundage, so it you know Let mostly bows start to stack when you get you know when when right. you're holding maximum poundage, and this gets smoother. So but tell me I'm about interested the, to try it. It's 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 uh it's. But tell me about the cosmetics that you've designed. So in memory of your mom. So yeah. So um, just thinking about my mom. My mom's from Columbus, Ohio, and uh, one of the things that. Uh, that she was so, so proud of was uh, being an Ohio State Buckeye. 
She went to the Ohio State University. She studied pharmacy there. My grandfather, um, my grandpa, my grandpa Joe, his name was Charlie, but we called him Grandpa Joe. Uh, he, he served in the 10th Mountain Division um, in World War II. Uh, so my mom had this cool connection with the mountains based on, you know, coming from the flatlands um, because of, you know, this relationship she had with her dad. And that's, I think, largely what had her intrigued about the mountains and what probably got her to come to Aspen for the first time in, I think, around 1968. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to do something really special and something that just spoke to me and that every time I picked that bow up, I would think of my mother. And uh, so the this is a pretty plain Jane kind of, other than this stippling with this elk shed is pretty cool, but the... But this one's going to be dressed up quite a bit. Um, and this whole riser area is going to be made from a, uh, from the burl from a buckeye tree. Um, and uh, I think my mom would have loved that. For sure she is. And then uh, couldn't stop there as long as I'm getting creative. So uh, it's going to have a, it's going to have a bighorn sheep. Uh, overlays through these finger grooves and then the limbs will be all skinned out with a prairie rattler and the tips will also be uh, bighorn sheep and uh, you know bighorn sheep I don't know spiritually uh, they're a very cool animals so that's meaningful to me and something that's cool to combine on something that uh, that I want to you know use to take my mom hunting with me and I uh I'm excited about it. It's a little tricky because I'm not going to have a lot of time to shoot it. Um, and this one, I, you know, this may be the go-to hunting bow this fall, but we'll see. We'll see. Well, I think you've got a lot of great karma on your side. You're a great hunter and a caller and a, and a fabulous, wonderful human being. You're gonna wow. be. You're gonna be great over there. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. Thanks I, for... uh, I hope you guys will come uh, at some point. I know you got big we'll plans. We'll come over and help you too, carry, but carry that monster hope, out of there. I hope you, uh, yeah, I hope you come, come join me. Well, thanks for joining love us that. today. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. Yeah, thanks, Nikki. You're one of the best, bro. Thanks, man. Love you. The older I get, the more reserved I become with who I want to spend my time with, and who I really care about. Time is becoming more and more precious for each of us, regardless of how old we are. This virus has each of us taking a closer look at what really matters in this world, and at the top of the list should be love and close friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode with a person I hold very close to my heart, not only because we're both mountain men from a small ski town that chase similar passions and dreams, but because Ryan Smalls has a great story and is one of the greatest people I know. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.